it was her most cherished jewel. I just get sort of um, rather excited by the fact that I'm on the very spot. It's the only one of Fabergé's eggs that looks like an egg. I love this fact they sort of stop for lunch halfway through the rebellion. He actually reaches down into the guy's throat and gets the diamond back. Welcome to History Gems. And I'm super excited about this episode because we're going to be talking about one of my favourite periods, ancient Egypt, and in particular, Tutankhamun. I've always been fascinated by the ancient Egyptians, but I'm by no means an expert. And fortunately, you don't have to rely on me to tell you about this hugely exciting period of history. My guest today is Egyptologist, writer and broadcaster, Dr Chris Norton. The mummy then itself was also adorned with numerous amulets, two daggers, some mummy bands, which are decorated inlaid plates of gold. I could go on and on and on, but so the, the mummy itself was, was decorated with masses of bling, but then there were um, dozens and dozens and dozens of other items of jewellery which were packed away in boxes elsewhere in the tomb. Nobody talks about Pharaoh's pants very often, and, uh, but they're there. Uh, lots of shoes, sandals, tunics. So these are all things that the Egyptians believed that the king would genuinely need to have with him uh, if he was going to live on in eternity in the afterlife. So, so everything that's in there is in some way a part of the baggage that he would need for his next existence. Chris is also the author of several books about Egyptian history, including the recently published Egyptologist's Notebooks. Hello, Chris, and welcome to History Gems. I'm so delighted that you could join me today. And it's a real privilege to have you here, especially because I'm a massive ancient Egyptian fangirl. <laughs> Hi, Nicola. Well, um, thanks for having me. And um, uh, let's hope that I don't just ruin your interest by making ancient Egypt into something very boring. I'll do my best. <laughs> I'm sure you won't. I'm sure you won't. Uh, so now... You are, of course, an Egyptologist, so perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about exactly what that is and what your job involves. Okay, so um, Egyptology is the study of ancient Egypt specifically. Um, the word suggests that it, it, it would be the study of, of Egypt in all aspects, but it's the study of the history and archaeology of the pharaohs, essentially. So that's um, the period from about 3100 BC, which is the point at which um, we think the first pharaoh of a united Egypt came to the throne, um, down to generally the Islamic conquest. Um, so that, that takes in 30 um, Egyptian dynasties, um, the coming of Alexander the Great, the Ptolemaic period, which followed that um, when Egypt was ruled for about three centuries by a line founded by one of Alexander's generals, Ptolemy. And then the period um, during which Egypt was a part of the Roman Empire. And, it, and most Egyptologists um, specialise in, in, in some aspect of the history or archaeology of Egypt during that time. Most of us... Um, kind of stop with our with our expertise if not our interest um at, at the islamic conquest so what that means for me is i i've done a i've done a bit of archaeological fieldwork in the past 
as Egyptologists, we can specialize in lots of different things. There are, there are specialists in the language, um, the ancient Egyptian language and the script, hieroglyphic. Um, there are other scripts as well, hieratic, demotic. Um, the latest form of the ancient language is Coptic, which is a hybrid of Greek with a few additional letters to allow for um, Egyptian words to be um, to, to be used. Um, there are kind of hardcore diggers, excavators, archaeologists. Um, you might specialize in art history um, or, or st- fairly straightforward sort of history telling. And I, I guess the last of those is where I've spent most of my time. So I, in the past, have worked for an organization called the Egypt Exploration Society, which is the closest thing we have to a kind of British school of archaeology in Egypt. Um, the EES has got offices and in London and in Cairo. Um, And um, I was there for about 16 years. Eventually, I was the director, the chief executive for a few years. But I left a few years ago to concentrate on my own work. And these days, I'm, well, of course, in lockdown, I'm at my desk every day and not really going anywhere. Um, But uh, I'm I'm spending most of my time writing books. Um, I do quite a bit of TV work. There's lots, um, there there are lots of Egyptology documentaries being made more or less all the time, it seems. And then this year in particular, um, online lecturing has taken over my life. Um, So uh, travel to Egypt hasn't been possible, of course, for a long time. So that's meant no no um, documentary filming, not not on location anyway. And um, and no work with tourists, which is another thing I do. I go to Egypt reg- regularly with specialist interest groups. So we're talking today about Tutankhamun, who I think many people will at least be faintly familiar with the name. But I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about him and his background. So Tutankhamun um, is mainly famous because of the discovery of, of his tomb. Um, had that tomb not been found or had it not been found intact by Howard Carter in 1922, we would know very little probably about him. He appears to have come to the throne at a very young age, around about eight or nine years old, uh, and he reigned for no more than uh, 10 years, so died somewhere between 18 and 20 years old. We're not quite sure how. Um he came to the throne at an incredibly interesting and important moment in Egyptian history in that he followed more or less directly, and scholars are still arguing about how directly, but his his reign comes at a time following a period of revolution um, under the pharaoh Akhenaten, who himself reigned for about 16 years and in that time he forbade the worship of all of the Egyptian gods except for one, a very particular form of the sun god called the Aten. Um, He completely transformed the way that human beings were depicted in art in two and three dimensions and the the whole of the world was depicted. So Amarna art is very, very distinctive. he, the king himself had himself portrayed in a very odd way, a kind of grotesque way. And he also, after f- four or five years, um, uprooted uh, the administration and moved somewhere between thirty and 50,000 people to a brand new capital city, which was built in a matter of a few years in the desert in Middle Egypt at a site we now call Tel El Amarna. So 
this was an incredibly tumultuous period when Akhenaten seems to have set about transforming every aspect of the country. And we don't know the full story. It's the nature of ancient history. Um, but the, the period is, pr- is very well uh, represented in the evidence. And yet we still only have what one Egyptologist referred to famously as rags and tatters of evidence. So we, we can't exactly know what was going on. But it seems that pretty shortly after Akhenaten had died, um, the old ways were put back more or less comprehensively. And this seems to have happened during Tutankhamun's reign. So because he was so young, we don't really know to what extent this was his idea and his responsibility, but it happened on his watch. Um, so so that makes this period, you know, incredibly important. It's, it's really momentous for the country. Um, and his tomb, as I mentioned, was discovered uh, by Howard Carter in 1922, yeah. revealing this vast horde of treasure. Um, And this, strangely enough, doesn't actually tell us a huge amount about Akhenaten's life and times or his character. Really? But it it did reveal to us uh, how old he was. Um, it's It's from the preservation of his body, of his mummy, that we can tell that he was such a young man when he died. And working backwards, that allows us to know that he must have come to the throne at a very, very young age. Um, and the the, um, the material from the tomb tells us a lot about things like the ability of craftsmen to work in lots of different materials and craft lots of different things. And it tells us about funerary beliefs mm. um, and practices. Uh, but, it, you know, we, we're still somewhat in the dark about about the boy and, and his times. But the... the Still, there's a, a vast quantity of information of, of lots of other kinds that have come from this discovery. So I think, for example, that didn't they discover that the mummy was wearing a gold mask? Um, and, you know, as you said also, that the, the tomb was found to contain numerous pieces of really rich objects. Um, are you able to tell us a little bit about some of those? Sure. Um, the tomb, uh, the tomb was found to contain more than five thousand objects, wow. um, and among them, um, two hundred-ish individual pieces of jewelry. Oh. Uh, the the body itself, um, it's something that I, I always think is worth sort of um, emphasizing because it's not always immediately apparent is that. We talk about Howard Carter having discovered the tomb in um, November 1922, towards the end of that month. That That's the moment at which Carter uh, was able to look into the tomb for the first time. So, uh, so what happened is that at the very beginning of November, at the very beginning of his excavation season, his workman, Carter wasn't even there at this point, by the way. Really? Um, yeah, he was, he was on his way to the excavation, but... Um, the digging had got going that day before he arrived. Just to give you a sort of an insight into yeah. how directly involved the excavator is, um, yeah. Egypt, Egyptologists um, and excavators are sort of supervisors, but the guys doing doing the actual digging are um, local excavators, Egyptians. Um, oh. They're the guys uh, who have the real skill in using a trowel 
to to remove debris and and to and to they they need to be able to tell the difference between what is just um, kind of unuseful debris or drift sand or mm. whatever it is, um, and and to distinguish that from important archaeological material. Mm. So these guys have got to work in the morning, and they reveal uh, a staircase um, descending into the rock. Carter then had to wait a cut of, couple of weeks um, to let his sponsor know. The sponsor arrives. This is the Earl of Carnarvon, and they can then continue the excavations, make a, a hole in the a sealed entranceway. And the fact it's sealed is massively important because it, it, it suggests to them that the tomb is intact, which is very, very rare. Um, and it's at that moment that they are able to make a little hole, look through, and uh, as Carter famously wrote in his, his account, um, he was asked by Carnarvon, can you see anything? And he says, yes, wonderful things. Um, mm. But the tomb was so crammed full of material that it isn't as though Carnarvon and Carter could simply walk in through the door and then have a quick look round, start picking things up. Um, of course, the first thing they have to do is record the position of everything without moving anything. Mm. And the the tomb is so full of stuff. Um, you know, every box that's in there is full of stuff. And so they didn't see a lot of these things for weeks, months, even years, because it took that long for them to carefully go through everything. So you're right about the death mask. And the death mask, this solid gold mask with inlays of um, lapis and coloured glass, um, is the most famous object from the tomb, and it's the it's the object that gives us the gives us the iconic image of the king's face. But Carter didn't see that for a couple of years because that's placed directly on the mummy, and the mummy wearing the mask was inside a nest of three coffins. Those three coffins placed inside a stone sarcophagus, and the sarcophagus surrounded by four gilded wooden shrines of sort of increasing size, a bit like a kind of Russian doll arrangement. So all of that had to be dismantled. The shrines had to be opened, dismantled, the lid of the sarcophagus taken off, the nest of coffins lifted out of the sarcophagus. Um, Carter noticed that this uh, coffins arrangement was incredibly heavy and he couldn't figure out why. And he discovered that only when he was able to lift the lid of the second of the coffin, second of three, revealing that the innermost coffin was made of solid gold. Um, and of course, the death mask is is then inside that. And gold is very heavy, yeah. of course. Um, so uh, yeah, um, th- that's why it was so difficult to lift out of the sarcophagus. And um, uh, the mummy then itself was also adorned with um, Numerous amulets, um, two daggers, uh, some mummy bands, which are decorated, um, inlaid um, plates of gold um, in sort of laid in strips. I could go on and on and on. But so the, the mummy itself was was decorated with masses of bling, for, for one, of, <laughs> one of a better word, a way of saying it. Um, but then there were... And dozens and dozens and dozens of other items of jewellery which were packed away in boxes elsewhere in the tomb. It sounds like, I had no idea um, that it just sounds like such a a complex and a time-consuming process, the whole, you know, opening up the tomb and having to record everything. And I had no idea. I literally had kind of just had this vision of Howard Carter strolling into the tomb and 
you know, saying, oh, wow, look what we found. Yeah. So yeah. obviously that's that's not an accurate picture at all. No, and yet, and yet um, that is because Carter, by, by this time in history, archaeology has developed to the point where somebody like Howard Carter was very aware that if you go sort of bowling in and opening boxes and, um, you know, poking about with things, um, some things can be so fragile and we have horror stories of this happening in other in other situations from earlier periods in history um you know if you go bowling in without without enough care then things just disintegrate before your eyes Mm. um but carter knew not to do that okay okay so he did um you know he had enough knowledge to uh to understand how to approach the situation properly yeah um, so to speak okay now what I'm interested to know is because you've talked about just how much was in this tomb and I'd like to know was it usual for Egyptian pharaohs to be buried with this level of splendor or was this something that's quite unique to Tutankhamun that's a good question um (laughs) The problem we have in answering that question is that the fact that that this tomb was discovered intact is so anomalous that it's difficult for us to know. Um, So we do have, uh, first of all, uh, just in case there are any pedants out there um, who already know the story a little bit, the tomb of Tutankhamun wasn't discovered completely intact. Um, It had been raided by robbers at least twice Um, and we know this because the the sealed doorway leading into the first chamber in the tomb which Carter called the antechamber and also the sealed doorway which leads from the antechamber into the burial chamber had also they they had both been um, breached and resealed um, and those stages in the process were quite visible to Carter. So he could tell that somebody had got there before, but they obviously either had been rumbled. Yeah. Um, they'd either been caught red handed. Um, and so the robbery was stopped or their intention all along was to do a kind of lightning raid, get in, get some, uh, get, get some small things that they could easily carry and run. Um, either way, they left the vast majority of stuff in there. Um, but it seems likely that some things did go. And sadly, particularly with this um, conversation in mind, it, it's likely that jewellery was among uh, the things they took. Mm. Um, in fact, Carter thought that as much as 60% of the jewellery may well have gone. So wow. believe it or not, those 200 items are the, 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 the 40% that remained. We do have intact burials from elsewhere. Some of the 21st and 22nd dynasty pharaohs who were buried at um, the site of Tanis in the, in the northern delta were, um, those tombs were found intact. But at that time, burial customs had changed, uh, p- probably changed sufficiently that we can't really compare. There was a lot less in those tombs. Um, they were far less spectacular than what was found in the tomb of Tutankhamun. And, and then from Tutankhamun's time, we have no other intact royal tombs. So it's it's really difficult to say. Um, it's difficult to imagine that Tutankhamun had the very best set of funerary equipment that was ever made. Yeah. Uh, but we know that uh, at the end of the New Kingdom, 
which is the kind of big chunk of of history uh, during which um, Tutankhamun reigned. And that's the period of the Valley of the Kings. At the end of that period, the authorities, the Egyptian authorities, had been unable to prevent the tombs from being robbed. Um, So it it might well be that a lot of the things which were found in Tutankhamun's tomb were present elsewhere, but were robbed. Or, and we we know a little bit more about this, thanks to some fantastic research done by a colleague of mine, Dr. Nicholas Reeves, um, it seems also likely that the Egyptian economy was in crisis by the end of the New Kingdom, and the authorities took the opportunity to um, do two things at once. One was to protect the bodies of the deceased kings in the Valley of the Kings by by moving them to new tombs, and subsequently also to take the opportunity to melt down precious materials like gold, precious metals, and recycle them for the economy. So, you know, a, a, a really great king of the period, let's say Ramesses II, who yeah. has a long and glorious reign, is very well known, you know, far, far better known than Tutankhamun. Mm. Um, somebody like that, it's difficult to think, wouldn't have had comparable burial equipment, but we've got almost nothing of it. It just doesn't survive. Gosh, I mean, that's incredible. But, uh, you know, it sort of doesn't surprise me in some ways what you were saying about the melting down and uh, recycling, because that's something you sort of see happening quite frequently in the period I work in, which is the 15th Mm -hmm. and 16th centuries. So Mm -hmm. interesting that it was it was going on then, too. Um, What I would also like to know is what was the purpose of having all of this grave material, so to speak? That's another good question. (laughs) Essentially... It is all to do, we think, um, with preparation for the next life. Okay. Um, so the Egyptians had a very highly developed conception of what happened after death. Um, and uh, we'd need hours and hours and hours to go through all the various sort of strands of belief and ideas. But essentially, the Egyptians believed that there was a next life. Um, and the king... The king has a has a very particular sort of set of tasks ahead of him. The king has to make a journey through what is conceived of as the night, um, through the 12 hours of the night. So on death, the king um, is shown, and there are, there are um, visual depictions of this, particularly on tomb walls in, in the tombs of the Valley of the Kings. That's where you can see this best. Um, the king in the first hour of the night assembles around him um, gods and goddesses who will protect him. And he uh, kind of in the guise of the sun god, of so, so as the sun itself, he begins this journey through the night on a boat with gods around him for protection. And on the way, he encounters all, all sorts of um, demons and beasties. In particular, a serpent, a great big snake called Arpep, who's his arch enemy, who has to be slain. And of course, the way this plays out, he succeeds. Um, and eventually he gets to the end of the 12th hour of the night, which is the point at which the night ends and the day begins. The sun is then then leaves the, the nighttime, leaves the underworld, the afterlife, mm. um, and is reborn into the day. And in the same way, the king is symbolically is then reborn into the next life 
and it's all rather complicated at this point. One aspect of the king slides back down into the afterlife to remain there with the other kings who have died for all eternity. But the, um, another aspect of the king is, is born again. Um, and in another sort of strand of belief, the king, the king then will live, as, as all good Egyptians would hope to, a kind of ideal um, sort of heavenly, heavenly afterlife in an idyllic version of Egypt. Um, and the, the items in the tomb are all in some way things that the king will need to equip him for this journey to the next life. So it's quite important, I think, that um, he's, he's buried with at least one um, dagger, very beautifully ornamented uh, dagger, uh, the blade is made of meteoric iron. The handle is made of um, with gold and uh, precious inlays, granulations of gold. And then the uh, the very end um, of the dagger is uh, is made out of a chunk of polished rock crystal. It's an amazingly beautiful thing, and it's it's placed on the mummy most probably because the king needed that for protection. Uh, to survive this journey and we see him in these scenes wielding a knife um, to attack Arpep the serpent to ensure that he can continue the journey and then all of the other things so and it, he's he's buried with not only sort of lovely blingy stuff like like jewelry and uh, lots of images of gods and goddesses that would be there magically to protect him mm. but also very mundane everyday things like he's buried with a lot of food a real actual food um, and wine and oils um, and spices and those kinds of things he will need because he's going to need to eat in the afterlife right so yeah. of course he, he he packs his food with him like you like you would if you're going on a family holiday to, <laughs> to scotland or something um and there's you know, masses of clothing in there as well. Um, I love telling people that there are loincloths found among the tomb of Tutankhamun because nobody talks about Pharaoh's pants very often, and uh, but they're there. Uh, lots of shoes, sandals, tunics. So these are all things that the Egyptians believe that the king would genuinely need to have with him uh, if he was going to live on in eternity in the afterlife. So, so everything that's in there is in some way a part of the baggage that he would need for his next existence. So it all serves a purpose. Everything's there for a reason, um, which is which is really interesting. Is it likely that some of the objects found, not just in perhaps the tomb of Tutankhamun, but in general, would these have been um, chosen by the kings themselves, or would this have been something that was done by you know um, whoever was? arranging their their tombs afterwards that's also a really interesting question um, <laughs> the short answer to that is we can't know what we can say is that um the majority of the items in the tomb were probably made to go into the tomb so they were manufactured only for that purpose so to give you an example Tutankhamun was buried if you can believe it with a number of actual chariots oh wow um, full scale uh th you know th in theoretically working chariots we uh, and then other let's say other military items as well so he's buried with a quantity of shields um bows arrows arrow cases um weapons of all kinds um in most cases we can tell especially let's say with the chariots that these were 
these were would only have been made for the tomb because they're again they're ludicrously blingy they're covered with gold foil um and other precious inlays they're extraordinarily beautifully decorated you know by by craftsmen who were as good as uh craftsmen working in wood gold leaf precious inlays etc ever ever were in the ancient world there's no there would be no practical purpose to doing this so we assume on this basis that these things weren't functional you know they were they were just there for for sort of symbol and show but in other cases um it seems as though things really genuinely were used by the king so there is a incredibly beautiful again incredibly blingy throne of the kings um uh, full size again um covered in gold leaf uh, it's it's decorated with a fabulously beautiful scene of Tutankhamun and his wife Ankhesen Amun um relaxing together in a very sort of naturalistic un-Egyptian looking pose actually this comes from the previous Akhenaten period when when the art was very different um and this throne is clearly from that that time this earlier period and it's got an early form of Tutankhamun's name which he only had at the, at the early part of his life um and had changed by the time he died so we can tell that this clearly was made years before his death which suggests to us that maybe this was a chair that he really used he really sat on this um equally we have we have shoes of his which are child size shoes which suggests that you know these these actually were things that he he wore in life in his younger days so maybe you know maybe Tutankhamun wanted those things to come along with him because they, they were mm. they were favorite items of his um but it's difficult to know i mean there's i don't think there's there's just far too much in there for us to even imagine that any one person would have chosen everything mm. um the general idea i think would have been um, okay, guys, we need jewellery. So all the best jewellers in the country have got to set to work making the finest things they've ever made. Mm. We need some chariots, guys. So chariot <laughs> guys, you've all got to get going on that. Clothing people, you've got to start making textiles like you've never made them before. You know, Tutankhamun may, maybe might have, you might have had a bit of oversight of this or, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd prefer it to be blue instead of red, thanks. Um, but... Uh, I mean, he at best would have been sort of overseeing things. I mean, it sounds like a huge operation. And actually, I had no idea just how massive his tomb was, because it sounds like it was absolutely gigantic. It's funny you say that. The tomb itself is very small. Oh. Um, which is one of the one of the sort of mysteries, if you like, of his story. Um it, it, the tomb is is in the Valley of the Kings. It's right in the centre of the Valley of the Kings. Um, you can see this very well if you if you look at a, a plan of the site, which also which shows not only the kind of contours of the valley, but the tombs uh, underground, as it were. Um, most of the other royal tombs, there are sixty four tombs in the valley altogether. They're not all. Um, they weren't all tombs as such. Some of them were not much more than pits used to receive objects or they were unfinished. Um, some of them were tombs of non-royal individuals, but there are also a lot of royal tombs in there. And the majority of them are large and elaborate, and some of them are absolutely vast. Um, 
Tutankhamun's is is really uh, is a, is among the smallest, and in fact, it's by far and away the smallest uh, tomb of any pharaoh oh. uh, in in the valley. So, what we think happened is that Tutankhamun died unexpectedly, and the fact that we know he was so young uh, kind of chimes with that idea. Mm. Um, and he died at a time when his tomb wasn't ready; his own tomb wasn't ready. So probably a tomb was being prepared elsewhere that would have been much bigger and much grander and much more beautifully decorated. Um, but because Tutankhamun died, um, and at that moment the clock is ticking, there's only a certain amount of time before the pharaoh's body has to be laid to rest, the authorities probably had to take over another tomb that was ready, but it was much smaller. Um, and they then had to set about uh, gathering together all the burial equipment Mm. And this, it seems, probably meant borrowing some stuff f- that had actually been made for other people and just changing the names. That's another interesting theme of the uh, the discovery. Um, and then all of this stuff is absolutely crammed into a very small space. The, in terms of the quantity of objects, it, it might have been right or it might have even been excessive. Uh, but in terms of the space that they were put into, um, it was actually much too small. Um, Another um, little amusing sort of nugget of of info from the tomb um, when when the coffins were introduced to the sarcophagus, so you've got a stone box into which human shaped coffins have got to be placed. Yeah, they placed the nest of three coffins inside the sarcophagus and found uh, at that moment that the feet of the king, which kind of point upwards. Um, in uh, according to the shape of the coffin, yeah. the feet were poking out of the top. Oh. Um, so they couldn't get the lid down. So what they did was they just chopped the toes off. <gasps> uh, and we know that they did that in the tomb, in in position, because the fragments of wood uh, from that process of of chopping, sawing the feet off, were found by Carter lying around in the bottom of the sarcophagus. So having having chopped them off. Yeah. They could then get the lid down and carry on with the job. But all of this sort of suggests that, you know, things were not done quite in an ideal way. Maybe they were a bit rushed. And maybe, again, that's because um, because he died very suddenly and unexpectedly. What happened to all of the objects that were found in the tomb? The vast majority of them uh, were transferred to the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. So there are some wonderful photographs and also moving images of Howard Carter and his team carrying um, wrapped uh, objects out of the tomb in this very rocky desert landscape um, for transport ultimately down to a to a boat on the Nile on which they would then uh, make the journey a few hundred kilometres north to Cairo. Um, and they were put on display in the museum in the years that followed and uh, have been on display there for most of the time since. However, a, a new museum is being built now. Um, in fact, it's very nearly finished um, on the outskirts of Cairo in what used to be a, a village, uh, the village of Giza, which gives its name to the Giza pyramids. Yeah. Um, it's now a a sort of city in its own right and it, and it, and it, there's no there's no dist- there's no gap in between Cairo and Giza it's all just one vast sprawl now 
Um, so the new museum is about an hour away from the old museum, which is in the centre of downtown Cairo. And the centre point, the centrepiece of, of the new museum, naturally, is going to be the Tutankhamun treasures. So lots of pieces have been moving actually over the course of the last few years between the old museum and the conservation centre in the new museum. Um, so uh, they'll be displayed in a in a brand new way uh, in the new museum. Just uh, if I may, the there are a couple of exceptions to the rule that things all went to the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Um, some, if you can believe it, some flowers were preserved in the tomb. Oh. Um, Tutankhamun's body was decorated with floral gar- garlands, um, and. The some of the the of those some of the flowers were transferred to the laboratories at the Royal Botanical Gardens um, at Kew, in London, um, which at the time was the the best research laboratory anywhere. So there are some samples at least there. Um, the mummy of Tutankhamun um, never, well, not quite never, but has has remained in the tomb. Ah. Um, Carter was quite keen that that aspect of the body of the of the burial should should be left where it was so for many years the outermost of the three coffins uh which is also covered in gold leaf gilded and i mean it's quite large the outermost one that was left in the sarcophagus with tutankhamun's body inside um it was taken out a few years ago for uh ct scanning yeah and then replaced in the tomb, but in an atmosphere-controlled glass case. So you can now see the mummy. Um, the coffin was was then left in the sarcophagus, but even that has now been moved to the conservation centre at the New Museum. Um, so so with, with that one obvious exception, the mummy, which I, as far as I know is going to stay in the tomb, mm. um, everything else will be in, on display in the new, the new Giza Museum, Absolutely brilliant. I'd love to go and see that whole collection. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, What I would just like to finish with is, are you able to tell us anything about what you're working on at the moment? Uh, Or not? uh, Yes, yes, I know. Um, Well, I've just published a book, actually, um, in the last last couple of months, um, uh, which is called Egyptologist's Notebooks, um, which is a... Another interest of mine is is actually in the history of of Egyptology, um, and and that's all to do with how we know what we know, if you like. Um, 200 years ago, we knew very little about ancient Egypt, um, but in the period since then, uh, we've figured out how to read the Egyptian language, and masses and masses and masses of archaeological information and material has been dug up. Um, And and so over that course of two centuries and a bit more, we have come to the point um, today where you know where we can tell a story about what happened in ancient Egypt. But I'm interested in that process um, and in exploration and discovery. And Howard Carter's story is a big part of that. Uh, so Egyptologist Notebooks is um, is an attempt to tell that story, but to tell it through uh, the archives um, of of the excavators and travellers concerned. So. Uh, particularly before photography came in um archaeologists um of course had to make extensive use of of drawing 
and even painting in many cases to capture what they were seeing. And um, these things were sometimes published, but often not. Um, and that means that there is a vast body of material out there in, in, in archives and libraries around the world of very beautiful historic documents capturing Egypt as it was um, in, the, in the more recent past, um, I guess. So, so Egyptologist Notebooks is a kind of visual celebration of, of that story with lots of beautiful paintings of temples emerging from the desert and the, you know, the kind of first moments when people entered, entered this tomb or that tomb, including Tutankhamun's tomb, uh, in fact. As I mentioned earlier, TV work's been on hold, tour work has been on hold. Um, and I'm in between books at the moment, so uh, and and very busy with online lecturing. So, brilliant for those listeners who would love to find out more about you and your work. Where can they find you? Uh, they can find me on all the socials um, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. My handle is just Chris Naunton, uh, no dot or space or anything. Um, and my website is um, chrisnaunton.com. Um, and I've been um, trying to make sure this year in particular that all the information people will need is, uh, is there. So uh, do, um, do stop by, folks, and, um, and say hi. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you found it as fascinating as I did. The Egyptologist notebooks can be found in all good bookshops and we'll be posting images of Tutankhamun's tomb on our social media pages at History Gems Pod on both Instagram and Twitter. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to press subscribe, leave us a rating and review, and of course, tune in for the next episode of History Gems.